So good to be here. Isn't it great just to be together and to worship God together and to sing together? And uh, I, love, I love collectively worshipping God together and singing. So uh, it's great to be here with you. So I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, and uh, it's probably a question that you've asked um, other people. Um, and maybe when you've asked it, maybe you might have wished that you didn't. Here's the question. How are you? Have you ever asked that to somebody and then wished you hadn't asked it? Or maybe you're here today and you were waiting for somebody to ask you how you are so that you can unleash them with just how you are. And maybe they might wish. And it's one of those phrases, isn't it, that's become a bit of a greeting. Have you noticed that? Like, so often it's not, how are you? Or I'm from up north originally, a place called Bradford. And we go around and say, how are you? How are you? And we don't really want to know. We don't. We really don't want. We're not looking for a conversation. It's just become a little bit of a greeting. And how many of you know that if I was to say to you, how are you today? You might be fine. But if I asked you later on today, you might not be fine. Or if I ask you today, how are you? You might not be fine. But if I ask you tomorrow, you might be fine. Because sometimes we can be great and other times not so great. Is that, is that just me or is everybody a little bit less? So let's, let, let's, let's, let's ask you, how are you? Who's fine? Okay. Who's not so fine? Few people putting their hand up, but not many. Who's absolutely superb? Oh, there's some double hands going up there as well. I'm loving that. I'm loving that. Well, I want to ask you today, how are you? And to help us explore that and investigate that some more, I want to ask you a few questions around that, but I'm going to take you to the best place to start when it comes to matters of life and faith, and that's to the Bible. So if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll understand what I mean if I say turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 21. If you're here today or watching online and you're not too familiar with the Bible, then let me just read these sentences to you. It's one of what I call my life passages, one that's really uh, massively impacted me. So let me read this to you. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. Now, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Now, if we are out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has and the new has 
all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting men's sins against them and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God for God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God it's a great passage isn't it gets you a little bit giddy with excitement it really really does so here's my questions number one a little bit offensive how are you smelling turn to the person next to you and give them a no don't don't well I mean some of you clearly are keen on doing that which is mildly concerning if I'm honest how are you smelling bit of a strange question to ask somebody in church I concede that but bear with it will become clear in hopefully a few moments I've got two daughters uh, they're a little bit older now they're uh, the, the oldest one is 18 and starting university in September-ish and my youngest is 16 so she's uh, in October forgive me she's firmly stuck in uh, her GCSEs now and uh, they don't do this so much these days but when they were younger they used to well I call it gang up on me that's what I call it they um they were quite clever they quite clever they worked out some basic principles for living and 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 the first one was they would know who to ask for a certain thing so if they knew that dad would say yes so they would ask dad and they wouldn't ask mum because invariably mum would say no to the things that I say yes to and they would also work out when they needed to ask mum for things as opposed to asking dad for things does that make sense and uh, in fact they've lost that art very recently um, I had a chat to them just a couple of weeks ago they were saying now they asked mum for something and she said no and I just said, well, you're stupid. You know that if you'd have asked me, I'd have said yes. And I feel like you've lost the art of being daughters. You know, you need to recover that art. So they learn who to ask for things, but they also um, learned when or when not, more significantly. So they, they knew that to ask me anything before seven o'clock in the morning, was, was a sure fire no. And this is not because I didn't want to give them it, it's because I'm barely breathing at seven o'clock in the morning. I am not a morning person at all. So like, if you're going to ask me something at seven and beyond, it needs to be accompanied with a cup of tea. And then you're more likely to get something. Have we got, is anybody here like me that you're a nighttime person? Okay. Who's a morning person? Okay, and who's neither? You're just not at your best any time of the day. 
Okay, a few slightly concerning people raising their hands with pride at that one. So they would learn when to ask. Um, but this is the remarkable thing. They would learn or they learned how to ask. Who they were asking at the time they discovered the best time to ask. And this is the bit I think two girls, they ganged upon me. I think this might be the usual approach when there are two sisters in a family. They would come up to me and they'd say things like, Daddy, love you. <laughs> yeah, some of you recognise that, don't you? Like my answer's already yes, isn't it, clearly? You know, even if I don't want to give them it, they've said, Daddy, love you. Two of them, together. Both flanks. Sit on my knee. Kiss me on the cheek. And more often not, kiss me on my balding bit. Daddy, love you. By sweetness, they convince me to give them what they were asking for. They didn't come in and give a three-point presentation as to why I should give them the item they require. They didn't approach it from a legal perspective. They didn't come with wise and persuasive words. They came with sweetness. And by sweetness, they would convince me. Come with me to our reading and look at verse 11. It's really interesting. It says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. Now, those of us who've been followers of Jesus, we kind of know what it is to fear the Lord, don't we? We've got a respect for him, a reverence for him. It's not a quaking in your boots fear, though there might be times when you experience that. But generally, it's just this recognition. He's God. He's, he's, like, he's like amazing. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. And we remind ourselves, that there's a reverence, isn't there, by which we approach God. We have this confidence. And, you know, I, I've Discovered, it's one of the things I say to people very early on in their faith journey when they've just received Christ. I say, look, the key thing is you've got to keep going. You just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Because in the early stages, like you're not always sure you don't have that confidence. Like even when you've been a follower of Jesus, you can have a wobble, right? Like, and if you've never had a wobble, brace yourself, there's one coming probably this week. Uh, something for you to look forward to. All right, so we have wobbles, of course, but we have this, this confidence that just carries you through. And it's like, it's like when people say to you, but how do you know? And you just say, I, I, I just know. And then they say, yeah, but how, how do you know? And you go, well, I kind of know that I know. And then they say, yeah, but how do you know that you know? And you I just know that I know that I know. And they, I, I mean, it goes on a bit, quite frankly. And you just, you just do, don't you? You've got this this confidence and sometimes it's just about digging deep into God and persevering and keeping going. And this verse says, we, we know what it is to fear the Lord, so we try to persuade men. Sometimes I think as believers, we put a huge amount of pressure on ourselves that actually God doesn't put on us. I'm not able to persuade people that's got to be the Holy Spirit. 
But it says here, we know what it is to fill up, so we try. <laughs> we just try. We give it our best shot. We have a go. Don't worry about failing when you're trying to encourage people to follow Jesus. Just try. This afternoon, as people are out and about from the church here, trying to persuade people that God loves them. It might feel really, really tough. It might feel really tough in your family. It might feel really tough in your workplace. But just try. But come with me to this word persuade. I did a bit of digging around because that's what we preachers are meant to do, to spend a bit of time digging around, trying to understand what the passage means so we can pass it on a bit. And I discovered this amazing thing about this word persuade amongst other things. Uh, it's John, isn't it? We were having a little chit-chat earlier about, after the first service about other things that it can mean, and it's fascinating. But one of the, one of the things it means is by sweetness, to convince. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try by sweetness to convince people. I, as a friend of mine who some of you, I think he may have preached here actually, he's a, he's a fellow evangelist so we tend to hog together and there's a guy by the name of uh, Gav Calver heads up an organisation called the Evangelical Alliance here in London actually. For those of you who don't know what the Evangelical Alliance is, it's an alliance of evangelicals. <laughs> really feel, Pastor Scott, that that's brought clarity to proceedings. There's loads of people writing that insight down now as we speak and highlighting it. And it's, it's a great organisation, but when he took over, he preached a lot and he still does about how he wants the evangelical church, those people that know and love Jesus in the UK and hold on to the scriptures, he wants us to be braver and kinder. I love that, don't you? Braver and kinder. We need to be braver because we know what it is to fear the Lord. We got to up the ante on brave. I'm not always that brave, are you? I need to be a bit more brave. But I tell you what, we need to be a bit more kind as well. I'd love it if the church outkinded its neighbours, outkinded its community, that we were a shining beacon of kindness, and by a sweetness we would try to persuade people to follow Jesus, not by some great oratory or some great legal presentation. There's nothing wrong with that. I do a thing called apologetics, which is almost trying to present good reasons why Christian faith is reasonable. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a biblical thing I haven't got time to go into today. But, it, but what we can all do is by sweetness convince. Let, let me take you to another little scripture which I'll link back and you'll see why I asked you how you're smelling. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 14 to 15 says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession um, in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him for we are to God the aroma of Christ amongst those who are being saved and those who are perishing. That's incredible, isn't it? This afternoon there'll be some processing, won't there? There'll be some walking and some carnival and some party and uh, that's great, a cultural expression and all that kind of stuff. But it's interesting because this verse seems to pull together this notion of sweetness and fragrance and confidence even more. When you triumphal procession in Christ, through it spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Um, 
I suffer from a thing, which I'm going to tell you what it is. Some of you will know what it is. And you might actually also suffer from this same thing. And um, so I'll tell you the name of it. And then I'll explain what it is for those of you who are none the wiser. It's called FOMO. Or up north, FOMO. Okay. And it's fear of missing out. Anybody else here suffer from fear of missing out? You just don't like missing out. Only a few of us. Rest of you are what I call miserable. <laughs> I hate missing out on things. You know, like when you go to a party, for example, and then you're feeling a bit tired because I'm 53, so I do a little bit more now. And so I'm starting to leave earlier and get into my bed a bit earlier than I would usually. And you go away and then somebody calls you the day after and says, <gasps> when you left, it got amazing. <laughs> I hate that. Don't you? I hate that. I don't want it to get better when I've gone. I want it to get considerably worse. Like, not that I think the world needs to revolve around me, particularly, but I want it to be rubbish till I get there and rubbish when I've gone. And I would, do you know, one of the things I would really, really love, genuinely, is that actually, in all seriousness, that when I do turn up, it gets better. What do I mean by that? That, that I, I carry this fragrance as believers. We carry this fragrance, this sweetness, this love, this presence of Jesus. That when we turn up to a place, it makes a difference. Wouldn't it be amazing if when you walked into a room, people in the room go, oh, what's that? What is that? Something's different. Now, I have to say to you, that's happened maybe three or four times in my life. But that's it. I'd love for it to happen more. Wouldn't you? Just that you, you make a difference. You rock up. You carry the presence. Because, ladies and gentlemen, we are the, the fragrance, the aroma. Or conversely, if I might just change the metaphor slightly onto something that I definitely relate to and that's food I quite like food anybody here like food quick show of hands okay good are you a little bit like me that you call yourself a foodie because it sounds a bit more cultured than somebody who's gluttonous it's a fine line isn't it I find very fine line but I do consider myself a foodie and again, this is a label I give myself to cover up for the fact that I like eating. But I, I discovered this lovely, lovely phrase in French fine dining. And I've, I've cleared it with John, my French con correspondent and consultant here. John's from France. There's this thing called a mousse-bouche. Literally means excite your mouth. Or up north, excite your gob. Literally. And what happens is, it's not like canapes. You know canapes when people walk around with canapes, or as my friend calls them, canapes. <laughs> Walks around with a tray of canape. Canapes, sir. It's not quite got the class, has it, really? Canape. And like the thing about canapes is you, is you can take quite a few of them, can't you, and smash them. I mean, for those of you who don't know what a canapé is, it's basically a Ritz cracker with a bit of prawn spread on it, isn't it? It's nothing more, maybe a quirly bit of cucumber just to make it look fancy posh. 
But an amuse bouche is like the height of richness. Like really, you're only supposed to have one. Now I, I have lots because my palate is ridiculously rich. I lay a challenge to anybody to outrich my palate. It cannot be done. I'm like super, super, super rich palate. So a single amuse bouche, I can eat quite a few, but you're not meant to. That's not very cultured and civilized. And, uh, but what an amuse-bouche is, is uh, you, you, you eat the amuse-bouche and it's so rich, it's so decadent, it's so lovely that it, it gets your, your saliva going, it gets your body going ready for the food that's about to come. And I also discovered when watching a programme, I, I think, I, I corrected myself this morning, I think it was on Fred, Gino and uh, Ramsey that program, if any of you have seen it. And, and what I discovered, was I love this idea that the amuse-bouche is not just about getting you salivating and getting your body ready to receive the food. It's actually a bit of a welcome statement. It makes a statement like you are welcome here. This is your home for this period of time that you're eating with us. It's, this, it's an openness, an invitational thing. And, and I love that concept. I love that scripture that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. There is no denying that the Lord is good. But the problem is, are we an amuse-bouche? Here's a slightly, bit of transparency, slightly loaded question here. I'm going to give you fair warning. Do your work colleagues, family, friends know that you're a Christian? Here's the loaded bit. And is that a good thing? When they think about God, when they think about Christianity, does it, does it warm them? Does it invite them in to explore? Does it get them spiritually salivating? Or conversely, have you ever had a meal, for example, where you've had a starter uh, and it's been so overly flavoured that you can taste it in the pudding? Have you ever done that? Like, I love garlic, but you can have a bit too much, can't you? And like, if you have garlic in the starter and then you can taste garlic in your pot au chocolat. It's not what you want, is it? You don't want garlic in the pot au chocolat. You don't want it. And it's like, oh, it's, it's just, it just flavours everything negatively. Wonder how the way we live our lives does it, does it flavour Christianity negatively? Or do we invite people in and, and amuse-bouche and are we a good fragrance? I used to pray a prayer a lot. Don't pray it quite as much, but I need to. It's a heartfelt prayer. and Maybe, maybe it's a great practical thing we could do as we go through our week. As we seek to reach out to people at the carnival for those who are involved with that or people in our friendship groups and community and this is it Lord help me leave a little bit of Jesus wherever I go wouldn't that be a great prayer if we could all join and pray that together on each week Lord just wherever I go help me leave a little bit of Jesus wherever I go so how are you smelling forward slash Tasting. Second question, how are you running? How are you running? Now, one of the things I love doing 
is, um, you know, um, handcrafted or, or um, um, cards, that's the word, it wasn't a difficult word I couldn't find. And you've got like, sometimes it can be an artist that creates cards from their artwork, sometimes it can be actually they've made it up, they've got some kind of tapestry on it. And I love getting those with, you know, blank inside so I can make my own message, prefer to do that, excuse me. But there was one such occasion, I was in desperate need, I needed to get a card for somebody. And so I had occasion. Now if you shop at these places, I'm not judging you. You know when somebody says I'm not judging you, you know they are, don't you? But I'm not judging you, but I went to, I, th I think it was the card factory. Do you know the card factory? Do, do, you, do you have card factory? Yeah, so you, you know it, don't you? I think that's the one. Well, it was a few years ago, so my, my memory's a little bit hazy. But I went into card factory, had to, had to go in to get a card. I didn't realise there were so many categories. I'm used to getting just handmade cards and I make it me own. No, there's loads there's for this, for that, for that, for this, for that. And I was looking around all these categories. I was really enamoured. And I saw this particular one that was from a boyfriend to a girlfriend. Well, I was intrigued. I was intrigued. So I had a little look. And um, on the front, it had like, I don't know, like five sort of phrases. Um, I won't attempt to recreate all of them because I'll try and recreate some of them, but you'll realise very early on that my romantic vocabulary is somewhat disappointing, shall we say. But I'll try and recreate the moment for you to help you live it. So I walked along, boyfriend to girlfriend, and on the front it said something along the lines of, I would climb the highest mountain. Just some of you are crying, aren't you? just to see you all but a speck in the distance. That's one of them. Second one was I would, oh let's go for this one, I would walk the driest desert just to hold your hand. It's beautiful, isn't it? Sensing a little bit of cynicism in the congregation this morning. <laughs> Quite frankly, work with me. I would swim the deepest sea. Uh, and I will sink. And you will sink. <laughs> of desperate love. John, you offered that one in the first service. You know when I said it was rubbish? You were very keen then to offer something. And I felt it was the same level of disappointment, quite frankly. But, I, you know, I think we love each other, so we'll move on, okay? But, but, or I will sink. I mean, there was an attempt there, wasn't there? To be honest with you, it's way better than I would have got for that one, quite frankly. So you got these kind of like five of these things on the front. And then I opened up to check out the little message inside. No word of a lie. Remember, there's five of these giving it all this on the front cover. Opened the cover, the, the first bit, looked inside, it said these words, I'll see you tonight if it's not raining. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's a bit disappointing, isn't it? I felt like I, I was expecting a lot more than I'll see you tonight if it's disappointing. I mean, like, on the front bit, I'll give it all that. Oh, the things I would do for you. Woo, give it all that. 
However, if there's any mild inconvenience, uh, all that's off. And do you know what? I'm, you won't be like this because you're way more holy than me. But I can be a little bit guilty of giving it all this. And then when it comes to a little bit of effort, I can be found wanting. Anybody else a little bit? I'm not going to you to put your hands up for that, don't worry. Anybody else feel a little bit like that? And do you also feel a little bit like me, like really annoyed with yourself? Like you come away from a Sunday and you feel inspired and enthused to go out and radically change your world and you can't even get home and change your duvet, do you know what I mean? It's like, oh yes, I am there. I'm gonna get up, I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna tell more people, I'm gonna live more holy, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that. And then it's tough, isn't it? It's rubbish. And if you're anything like me, you totally resonate when the apostle says, Apostle Paul says, look, I set out to do this, but I don't. I mean, that's what I take out of it. It's a little bit more poetic than that, but that's the top and bottom of it is. I decide I don't want to do it and I do. I decide I do want to do it and I don't. And I totally get that. So how on earth can we get our words to match our actual actions? Well, I think the secret is something in this reading. Verse 14 says, For Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us. The imagery here from one commentator, a commentator for those of you who don't know, is somebody that knows way more about the Bible than most of us. So a commentator says, yeah, and I absolutely love this, that the image here is like of Christ's love being this fast running and flowing river. Now, I don't want to be insensitive, so please understand my purpose of the illustration. You've seen, haven't you, when when rivers have, have, have carried and lifted up buildings and some of the, the, the power that there is in, in a river, how it effortlessly uh, picks things up and carries it along. And I don't in any way want to minimise the suffering and pain that is caused by those. But I think something of that idea of his love, Christ's love being this fast-flowing river that kind of picks us up and carries us along. I understand from people that study rivers that I call riverologists, I don't think that's the name, but I quite like it, that actually you can't always tell how fast a river's flowing until it meets like an obstacle. So if you go out into the countryside and a river, like even just 200 metres away, can just look really slow and then all of a sudden it meets a few rocks. Or in Bradford, it meets a shopping trolley in the river. That's what tends to happen there. But you get this idea of, of the, 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 the power and the pace, even just of a really shallow, placid river. Oh, Jesus, so fill me afresh with your love that I'm just carried along like a fast-flowing river. It's been estimated how far the Apostle Paul walked in his efforts to spread the gospel. Listen to this. According to the book of Acts, he took three missionary journeys. The second of these alone amounted to 3,000 miles, 2,000 of which would have been on foot. The average daily distance of a traveller of that time was about 20 miles, with a Roman inn being located every 20 to 25 miles, a little bit like a motorway service station. These inns were unbelievably filthy, 
immoral and bug infested. Again, a little bit like a motorway service station. Paul travelled through snowy mountain passes and spring floods. He walked through areas famous for harbouring robbers and criminals. He braved wild beasts which imperiled every traveller. The travel recorded in Acts 16 alone would have covered 740 miles and that of chapter 15 would have been 500 miles. And to think he was not doing it for his own health. It wasn't because he'd set his 10,000 steps a day target on his Fitbit that he was doing. This was purely down to the spiritual well-being of others. I want to suggest to you today that Paul's outward walking was down to his inward running. Paul's outward walking was down to his inward running. Running, And I think the early church had some of that as well. I love Acts 5 verse 42, which when you read it, like as it's really meant to be read, rather than a just kind of unemotional, almost non-dynamic flat way, when you read it with a bit of dynamism in there, you really catch something of the early church. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. It's got a bit of a focus, hasn't it? It's got a bit of an urgency. And I think they did it not because of obligation, not because of pressure, not because the pastor of the church was telling them to do it, but I think they just had the love of Christ carrying them along. And daily, everybody evangelism. In the temple, church evangelism. In every house, house to house evangelism. They Every believer evangelism did not cease hot-hearted evangelism, teaching, instructional evangelism, and preaching, preaching evangelism. Jesus as the Christ, Christ Christ-centered evangelism. I think they understood something of what Paul talks about a little bit later on in verse 19, when it says that he has committed to us this ministry The Greek word for committed to us literally means hath put in our hands. When you put something in somebody's hands, what are you doing? You're passing over responsibility. You're passing over ownership. It doesn't become theirs necessarily, some instances it does. But you're basically saying, look, Ministry of Reconciliation, reconciliation, it's over to you. Um, Often people come to say to me, Mark, can you help me? What's my ministry? And I say to them very simply, reconciliation. No, but what's my ministry? Reconciliation. No, am I a worship leader? Am I a pastor? Am I a teacher? Am I an evangelist, an apostle, and a prophet? Am I, am, I, am I a nurse? Am I an administrator? Am I... That's your gift. That's what you do for a job. That might be your calling. But your ministry, according to 2 Corinthians 5 what God has put into our hands, what God has transferred ownership for is reconciliation. In another part, it talks about the message of reconciliation. See, I love this thought, ladies and gentlemen, that you and I are involved in reconciliation. Reconciling people on the earth to God in heaven and reconciling people on the earth to people on the earth. I was saying uh, in this morning service, I 
live in uh, Kenilworth, which is a town just by a Shakespeare land. And, uh, but it's attached to Coventry, that, and the cathedral there is known as a cathedral that's all about reconciliation. What a great thing to be known for. Wouldn't it be known if KT was known as a place of reconciliation? Wouldn't it be great if you as a Christian were known as a person of reconciliation? Well, that's what the Lord's placed in our hands. He's, that's what he's, he's put into us. It's, it's our responsibility. Another part, it talks about we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God himself was making his appeal through us. You see, I think this, this being carried along by the love, this, this idea of reconciliation being placed in our hands and being an ambassador, I think Paul understood something of that. And that's what catapulted him out. It wasn't this pressure, it wasn't this leaning on from anybody. You know, he just did it. Because I think... This is my own personal thoughts here, but I think you'll go with me on it. I think he understood something of the sheer privilege of being a follower of Jesus. And if I'm honest, sometimes in my own life, I've forgotten that privilege. Anybody else? Sometimes I feel pressure, not privilege. God really spoke to me a few years ago and I began to realize, gosh, I, I pray because I get to, not because I've got to. And tell people about Jesus because I get to, not because I've got to. I don't know if you know this, but God doesn't really need you. Like, okay, so you know when God created the world, it was pretty good. In fact, on the final day when he said that, it was very good. So God was pretty happy, it was perfect. And then we came along and messed it up. He really needs our help, doesn't he? But this is what I find a little bit bonkers, a little bit crazy, but incredibly beautiful, that God doesn't really need me, and yet he's chosen in his wisdom to reduce most of his activity on planet Earth through people like you and people like me. Oh, Lord. Give us that sense again of the privilege. And you know, wherever you go, God is making his appeal to people that don't know him. Let me bring in the final point that just takes us to the close of what I want to share with you this morning. How are you looking? I'm not on about like take a selfie and go, hey, looking good. I'm told by an article I read a few years ago, that the Royal Mint, the people that produce the money in the UK, estimate that there are three million pounds worth of lost pennies in, in the UK, like down the backs of sofas, down gutters. So I've decided, ladies and gentlemen, that this time next year, I'm gonna be a millionaire. I've started looking. I've got three P so far. But you've got to start somewhere, haven't you? I'm also told that the average person over 50, that's me, I'm 53, will have spent a year looking for lost items. That is scary, isn't it? Now, don't shoot me, ladies. This is purely the facts. 
The facts are friends. This is true of the average British woman, but I think it's probably true of most women across the globe. Big statement, but hear me out first. The average British woman spends 76 hours a year looking for things in her bag. <laughs> Fair? Fair. The thing that I don't want to hear from my wife when I ask her where something is, it's in my bag. I don't want to go in there. I'm scarred. One year I went in my wife's bag looking for something in November and didn't come out till Easter. It's a scary, scary place. And my wife is skilled at losing things. It can only be a skill. Like, genuinely, at least three times a day. Where's my phone? At least three times a day. Where's my keys? I rarely lose my items. Do you know why? Because I put it where I know they'll be. I feel like this is turning into a therapy session now. So I'm going to move on. I feel like there's some unresolved emotions in here. We even found her phone in the washing machine. When I said I'm moving on, I'm not. Brace yourself, there's a lot more. Oh man, if I think about the hours I have wasted looking for lost items, it's scary. But I want to suggest to you, when we're looking for lost people, it's not a waste of our time. It's the priority of our time. It's the whole reason my Bible tells me Jesus came was to seek and to save that which is lost. For those of you who are going to be about telling people about Jesus' love in the carnival this afternoon, you might not get much feedback, but you're going out looking for the lost. It's a good use of your time. It's high priority. I, I might argue, and I'm an evangelist, so I see everything through evangelist's eyes. I get that. But I think it's the priority of the church to look for the lost. I'm not saying everything else is a waste of time, because it isn't, but it's the priority of the lost. Verse 16 here says, from now on, we view no one from a worldly perspective. How much of looking for those who are lost is a priority for you? And then as you look, or maybe this holds you back from looking, particularly amongst family members, because you can look from a worldly perspective, can't you? You know the people that you just think, oh, I can't see it. I can't even have conversations about faith. I want to invite you to believe again as I begin to land my talk this morning. Let's believe again. Let's look again. Let's go again. Because do you know what? Nobody is beyond the saving grace and power of Jesus. Let's look again. Let's look differently. Let's look with renewed vision and renewed priority. How are you? How are you smelling? Slash tasting. How are you running? How are you looking? May we pray. I'm not going to invite people out for prayer, though clearly there's a ministry team here at the church and if that's something you'd like at the end then please do feel free to come forward and have somebody pray for you that's not a problem but I just feel the Lord wants us just to have a, a moment of reflection 
And so just in personal, private response then, how are you, how are you smelling? How are you tasting? How are you running? How are you looking? I wonder whether you might just offer a personal, private prayer to God and then I'll pray for us collectively and then I'll hand back over. Father, I simply ask that in the name of Jesus and through and by the power of your spirit that you would renew something in us from today that would cause us to smell well, to taste well, to run well, to look well. Lord, I pray that, yeah, I just feel I, I really want to land this prayer on that your, your love will carry us along. It will compel us like this fast-flowing river. Lord, help us. For those who maybe feel a bit dry in their walk with you or a little bit pressurised in their walk with you or just a little bit stale or maybe uninspired or defeated, Lord, even now, would you, Holy Spirit, fill us afresh with the love of Christ that it would pick us up and carry us along. Lord, I pray that through the days and weeks and months and years that lie ahead, we'll feel carried. I'm just going to pause here for a few seconds. Just feel that that's something for a number of people here. I just want to create a few moments for the Holy Spirit just to whisper into your, your ear, I'm carrying you. I'm carrying you with the love of Christ. I feel that's really important for a few people here. So I don't want to race on again. I'm not going to invite you to, to come out if you'd like to, somebody to pray for you at the end, as we've mentioned. But I do just feel a little bit of a, a nudge from the Holy Spirit just to focus around that. nice knowing you're carried isn't it when you feel that you can't do any more maybe even listening today there might have been a bit of anxiety creeping in I can't, I can't, I can't do it and the word from the Lord to you is let my love just carry you along. And at the moment, not even for something, just let my love carry you along. So Father, particularly for those people that that really resonates with, may they even now just sense your Holy Spirit picking them up and carrying them along anxiety will just go and drop off them feeling pressure to perform or to be or to do but just even now let it be tangibly dropping off them may they just begin to feel those weights dropping off them
I just want to speak that scripture over your, your life. For those people that that resonates with, I'm going to speak it over them. I just want to highlight something. You'll know it well, 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. I don't know what you think of when you hear that voice, that verse, whether it's just a kind of casual kind of giving them over. But I think the word cast is a really important word. It, it means to get rid of, just to say, good riddance. I've had enough, I'm throwing them over to you, Jesus. Not just, hey, Jesus, come and help me with this. And I, I just feel, and this is not going to be for everybody, but I feel some of you just in your heart right now need to just say these words, not out loud, just in the quietness, good riddance to, and mention those things that are causing you concern and worry. Just good riddance and name it. And then just imagine yourself like throwing it as far away from you as you possibly can. Or even better than that, the Holy Spirit. (laughs) That's the one, isn't it? The Holy Spirit throwing it as far away from you. And I pray for release. In Jesus' name. Amen.